Hello, this is Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. In today's episode, I speak with Professor Mimi Roca about pursuing a career as a federal prosecutor. In this episode, I speak with Mimi Roca, Case Law School's Distinguished Fellow in Criminal Justice and an NBC MSNBC legal analyst. Professor Roca talks about her professional journey from her pre-law school days as a paralegal at the New York District Attorney's Office to her long career as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District, to her current time as an NBC-MSNBC legal analyst and a distinguished fellow in criminal law. She shares many professional pearls of wisdom, including the importance of having a mentor, the value each job brings to the next professional experience, and the role that good judgment and high emotional intelligence can play in hiring decisions. Professor Roca takes us back to her first months as an assistant U.S. attorney when she watched the towers fall during 9-11. And she shares stories about some of her most memorable prosecutions. Oh, and listen for a guest appearance by Ace, her adorable rescue dog. So when I was in college, I saw Linda Fairstein speak on a panel. Linda Fairstein was then the head of the sex crimes unit at the Manhattan DA's office. Mm -hmm. And she inspired me. Uh, this was during the time. In, is this the Jennifer Levin time? Uh, it, it was the no means no. I remember okay. being on my college okay. campus and she inspired me. And I said, I want to, this is what I want to do. I want to be a wow. sex crimes prosecutor. Uh, and actually it was partially inspired by some personal um, circumstances. I had a very close family member who actually had been raped twice. Okay. So that combined with seeing Linda Ferristine, it was, so I went and worked for the Manhattan DA's office as a paralegal. I wanted to work in the sex crimes unit. They were full at the time. I ended up in the appeals bureau. And this okay. is a good example of what I think becomes a theme in my career, which is it wasn't exactly what I was looking to do, but it was an opportunity. I took it, and I think it ended up being overall probably even better than working in the sex crimes unit because it gave me a broader view working in the appeals bureau into criminal law in general. Right. And so opened my eyes to sort of all different things. Um, and this is before, I know you said this before, but this is before you even went to law school. Yes, this okay, is great. as a paralegal. Right. It was an extremely valuable experience. I got to watch trials and watch prosecutors and learn. Um, and then I worked as a, in a fellowship program called the New York City Urban Fellows Program for, uh, you get placed with a city agency, and I ended up working in the, in the New York City Police Department, mm -hmm. uh, working with the Deputy Commissioner for Legal Affairs, whose name was Jeremy Travis, who ended up being someone who's still to this day a mentor to me. And that's, oh, nice. I think, another thing that I've learned throughout my career is when you find smart people who you are working with or for, um, you know, keep in touch with them. Mm -hmm. They are sometimes not only valuable in terms of opening doors, but giving great advice. Right. And he, to this day, I recently called him for job advice on huh. something. Um, and he gave me the best advice in two minutes. So, you know, yeah, mentors are wonderful. Yeah, and yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't just to digress a little bit. I don't think we do enough to explain to students how important mentors really are. I think I, I, that's probably right. And I think it's hard when you're focused on getting through exams and getting through school. But once you're out there, you know, those, those become real, yeah, almost guidance yeah. counselors in a way. I mean, you don't mm -hmm. want to, you can't take up that much of their time, but someone who knows you and knows your strengths and your weaknesses and so can advise you on it and has seen you in action. I think those are really valuable mentors. Okay. So I did that for two years. It was incredibly valuable because it allowed me to grow, to have a little perspective by the time I got to law school. Um, I think, you know, I took law school very seriously, but having worked for two years already, it, it just made it um, a little less 
little less daunting. <laughs> no, it certainly was. That first it's year of law school, very daunting. It's uh, cute. Quiet, okay. <laughs> well, we could say we're joined by your dog, Ace. Yes. Hi, Ace. Beautiful dog. What kind Thank of dog you. is it? He's a mix. He's oh. a rescue. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Gorgeous dog. He's about two years old. He's wow. a total sweetheart. So, um, okay. So, you finished your urban fellowship. Right. I finished that. Um, I went to law school. Um, we can sort of skip over law school, I guess, in the sense that the people listening to this probably know more about law school right now than right, I do. Um, and then right after law school, I clerked mm-hmm. for uh, Judge Gleason in the Eastern District. Another thing that I don't think we educate students about enough. We do educate some students, but I think that that's something law students should be aware of, is that clerking for a judge after graduation is probably one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable experience, if you can get it. Absolutely. It really is. Yes. I think clerking is um, invaluable, is, mm-hmm. is the word, uh, for so many reasons. You see so many different types of lawyers in action. It helps you to formulate in your head a little bit, you know, what style lawyer you, you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you're going to copy someone, but you, 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 you sort of get to see different role models again. Um, learning from a judge, having that one-on-one relationship with the judge and hearing their thoughts and how they decide cases. If you ever want to practice in court, having a clerkship at the district court level, I think is invaluable or state court, anywhere that lawyers are actually, you know, doing cases, practicing, trying cases and and practicing. Um, I think, you know, it can be very hard to get clerkships right out of law school. I think a lot of judges now, especially at the federal level, look for people who actually have worked already. Interesting. Um, and I think you mean have clerked at a lower court or have both? I have think worked. I, oh, in practice. So oh, actually okay. working oh, at law know. firms. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, they look for people who have because to them, someone who has worked in a law firm for two years and knows what discovery is, right? When they're deciding discovery, helping decide discovery motions is is more valuable. So, so that's that can different help. than what it used to be. Yes. Right? It used, it to, used be to be right, right out of law okay, school. Now, okay, so that's I, interesting. I think All right, that's well, a different trend. Another and podcast. Then, sort of on <laughs> yeah. top of that. Um, going to, I, I then, uh, I, I did work for a few months at Cravath, um, for about nine months and then went on to clerk on the second circuit for Chester Straub. And I think that a lot of circuit court judges look for people who have district court experience. So you you, you sort of build on it and you have to be patient. I mean, this is, I think the way to build a career in Mm -hmm. part is, you know, you look, okay, going to a law firm, even if that's not my long-term goal, that will help me get a clerkship and I can make some money and I will learn some valuable skills. Then going to a circuit court, you know, that can build, each step can help lead to the next, I think. Which is, and that's a really good point too, because the idea is that you should never think that you're wasting your time doing one thing if it's not your ultimate thing, but look at it kind of as a building block. Exactly. Everything's a journey. I mean, life's a journey and everything's a step toward that journey, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, I, you know, I loved both of my clerkships in very different ways and learned a lot and, and learned very different things in both of them. Because again, I think the district court and the appellate court, um, experience is very different, but they were both, you know, very helpful. And then I did go to the U S attorney's office, Southern district of New York after that second clerkship. I will say in terms of people who are aspiring to go to any prosecutor's office, it is a little unusual, especially in the Southern District for sure, to go there uh, without having worked more as a hands-on lawyer than I did. So I'm that not a great say. example in that sense. How many years out of law school were you, do you know? Uh, I was started? about three years out. 
three and a half years. And what's typically, how many years of practice? I would say three to five is is common, but you know, they do look usually for someone who's had a little bit more in court experience. I going back to our first point, I think during my interviews, I talked up a lot, the work that I had done before law school. And because it was so relevant, you know, being a paralegal in the DA's office, working in the police department, Mm -hmm. I think that helped a lot. I think having clerked for a judge who Judge Gleason, who had himself been a prosecutor, and so I learned so much from him about that. So I think there are sort of ways to deal with it, but anytime I speak to someone, and I have, you know, recently, who's looking, how do I, you know, what's the best path to, to, to being a federal prosecutor, I, I say you really do need to work. It doesn't have to be a law firm if you're just opposed to that. Some people need to work at a law firm to pay back loans. Mm-hmm. Some people just refuse to do that. You can go to a public interest organization or... Uh, work in another kind of government job, city agencies, state agencies, anywhere that they're going to get hands-on experience. Mm-hmm. And also, if you can also do a clerkship at any level, I think that's very helpful too, because both sides of that, being the hands-on litigant who has actual experience with witnesses and brief writing, and then also being in the judge's role and knowing how they decide cases and watching all the other litigants. So I think both of those things really come together to make you a better applicant. Yeah, which makes sense. It's the whole spectrum of, you know, bringing a case to deciding a case. Correct. really kind of takes you through the whole thing. And also, I think, you know, it's not so arbitrary. I mean, I think part of being a federal, being a good federal prosecutor, and we can talk about this, you know, a little Mm -hmm. more depth, but very basically, is being a person who is ethical and confident enough to make decisions based on the ethics and not just, you know, what they think they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So in other words, you know, let's say in the most extreme example, if you charge someone and it turns out you got it wrong and you find that out along the way, you need to have the confidence to walk into your supervisor's office and say, "Uh uh-oh, we messed up. Because that's absolutely the right thing to do. This is an extreme example. This rarely happens, and it usually comes up in much more subtle ways. But that's an example of why you you really need someone who has some life experience and has the emotional and psychological maturity to be able to handle situations like that. And so I think that's that's another reason why working for you know three to five years at least um, will make not only make you a more attractive applicant but make you a better prosecutor Mm -hmm. because so much of being a prosecutor I think is trying to figure out what is the quote right thing to do and it's not always the obvious thing yeah and you know it's interesting I think about that I think you're pointing out two things one is to bring to an interview that you're bringing to the job this emotional intelligence that's going to help you make sound decisions. But also, when you talk about having the wherewithal to know that you're not going to charge someone, you know, you could, th- well, that's nice for the defendant, but it's also nice for the government because right. it's not wasting resources, it's not wasting taxpayer money. So it's really like a win win yes. Yes. to admit you made a mistake. Correct. Um, and so I think if I was involved in the hiring process in, in Southern District, and probably the word, you know, I heard most talked about in our hiring committee meetings and talking about people we had interviewed and applications is judgment. Does the person have good judgment? Hmm. You know, it's not easy, but it's relatively, uh, you, you can find applicants who are smart, who are good writers, even people who without a ton of experience are good at arguing in court, 
questioning witnesses, but finding people with good judgment Mm -hmm. is harder than you think Hmm. and is more important, I think, to the people uh, doing the hiring than anyone realizes. Because again, that's what I think comes down to being, you know, uh, that's the, the heart of being a good prosecutor is having good judgment and knowing when to use this power that you have mm-hmm. and when not to. That's a pearl of wisdom. I mean, that's what really <laughs> it is. That's a great it's pearl what of I wisdom. I was taught in the Southern District. I mean, it's hammered in your head from, uh-huh. the, from the day you get there. And not that, you know, anyone's resistant to it, but it really is sort of the mantra there of, right. you, and it's said in a hundred different ways by different people. You know, Preet was uh, Barraro, who was U.S. Attorney for probably the longest while I was there, though I served under many. But Pre was the most articulated saying it, uh-huh. so I won't even try to say it the way he did. But the essence of it is prosecutors have an immense amount of power in our society. And you need to use that power in ethical ways with good judgment and do what's right, not mm-hmm. just what you, you know seems like the obvious, easy right. thing to do. Right. That's a good lesson. And often that is not charging as opposed to charging right. or giving someone a break when they uh, deserve it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, also just knowing when to believe people. I mean, that often comes down to judgment calls. Mm -hmm. And and so much of our criminal justice system is built on uh, the credibility of witnesses, of cooperators. And, you know, this is coming up now so much in our daily lives and in the public arena. It's it's true in everyday cases, too, in gangs cases, drugs cases, Mm -hmm. small fraud cases, not just big cases involving high-profile people. (laughs) (laughs) Which you're on television for, but we'll get to that next. All right, so tell me about your time in the Southern District. So you've been out of law school three years, we said, right? About three years. Okay, fine. Okay. And I, uh, so you go in, and at least in the Southern District, and I think different offices do it differently, everyone's in uh, for their first year what's called the General Crimes Unit, which is kind of like the, you know, the the preschool for... (laughs) (laughs) It's where your training happens. You get the smaller cases... Um, you have the most hands-on supervision. Uh-huh. Um, you have a very high caseload because they are smaller cases. And so you just, you know, you, you get through dozens of cases within the first few months. And mm-hmm. it's an incredibly steep learning curve. And it's overwhelming and exciting. And you, every day, walk around thinking, I can't believe someone's letting me do this. You know? <laughs> and you're in court and you're arguing. And it's wonderful and exhilarating. And, you know, right away, I knew it was going to be probably the best job I would ever have. Wow. Um, so you... So uh, you do general crimes for a year. Everybody does that. Um, and it's you, you learn very quickly that part of what is reassuring, even though this job is incredibly daunting and you're, you, know, you're real, you realize the enormity of it, that you're dealing with people's lives, mm-hmm. but you aren't making decisions alone. And that's one of the uh, things I think people don't understand about how, I'm sure this is, this is not just the Southern District of New York, but probably offices all over the country of Department of Justice, um, that you, you it's a team. It's really right. a team effort. You Whether it be just going, you know, sitting in a group with your colleagues at lunch and, hey, I've got this case, and you know, or it is going to your super... I mean, there are strict um, rules for supervision and mm-hmm. things that need to get signed off, but there literally would be lines out the door for our supervisor's office, people waiting in line to go in and talk to them because those are the people... Right with years of experience. Actually, and you know who's done a... Do you, I, don't, I hate to bring up a TV sure. show, but have you ever watched Billions? Mm-hmm. All right, so for all the wrong reasons, but I have to say one of the things I think they have done well is shown 
the community process yes. Yes. of making decisions whether yes. to charge or not. Now, I personally don't like the show <laughs> because I think it shows prosecutors in a very unethical light who are out to get their guy no matter how you that know, is how they accomplish it, which is the opposite of what I was taught. Right. Process matters um, as well as substance. But um, but yes, that. And and I think again, just I can't help but turning to current events for a minute. Mm-hmm. It's part of what people don't understand about how the FBI works, the Department of Justice works. There's no one person who can really screw things up so badly right. or do something unethical because no single person in these kinds of institutions has that much power. You know, the line agents, the line assistants, they're all making decisions together. They're all being reviewed by many different levels. Um, you, pe- people seek it out, but but it's also imposed upon you whether you want it or not. So that gave you a safety net, if you is that absolutely a, yeah. yeah. And 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 it just the people I learned the most from were you know my colleagues and my supervisors, mm-hmm. and um, it's incredibly valuable. Um, and then for the second year in the office, um, I went to the narcotics unit, which again is what everybody does. That's the path in the Southern District, and that too was you know is great training because narcotics cases tend to be very fast moving. They use wiretaps, which you know most people haven't done in their first year with the smaller cases. So you're using Title III wiretaps for the first time. You learn oh, wow. that whole application process. Um, you're now dealing with cases where people, because of the way the drug laws are written, you know, very high mandatory minimums. So the stakes are incredibly high, and so many people do end up cooperating. So you sign up a lot of cooperators. So, so you really get to learn a lot of the nuts and bolts of being a prosecutor mm-hmm. um, in those first two years. And it's designed that way. And it's, it's, a, it's a good way of doing it, yeah. I think. Um, so I did the general crimes and narcotics. And then the way it works is you um, get to sort of pick a, a senior unit to go to, which are more specialized. At the time, I went to a unit that was called the Organized Crime and Terrorism Unit mm-hmm. that no longer exists because now there is, in the Southern District anyway, there's a violent and organized crime unit, which do, does, does like that gangs, gangs too, yeah. But and then the um, terrorism unit is a separate unit okay. now. And that happened after 9-11. And so what year were you, what year were you in that? So, Where are we now? Yeah, we're in, uh, sorry, I started <laughs> in the office actually in February of... Um, 2001, so shortly before September oh, wow. 11, okay. which is a whole other story. Oh my story. goodness. Um, I, and for those who don't know the geography, you yes. were downtown. I was wow. blocks from the World wow. Trade Center. Wow. I came up the subway wow. um, as the second plane was hitting. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that at the time, but yeah. I came up and I looked up the stairs and I saw people looking at something. I didn't know what they were looking at with a look on their face that I had never seen before. And I, I, I literally had my head in a brief. I literally was walking and reading a uh-huh. hideous brief. Huh. I can remember what I was wearing. I can remember what I was reading. And I saw their face and I thought, this is not good. I ran up the stairs. My instinct was to get out. Someone pointed to what had just, you know, and all I saw was a hole in the building. And my instinct, interestingly, was to run to my office. So I started going to my office, which was a few blocks away. I was on Church now and Chambers. So oh, wow. Really, so really, 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 really there, yeah. And it was just chaos. And as I got to the plaza where the office is, people were streaming out and they were saying, we can't go in. They're evacuating us. We have to walk. So I just walked with a bunch of colleagues north to someone's apartment. Mm-hmm. We walked in. We turned on the TV and Lisa. watched the towers wow. fall. Wow. And I will just one more point about that. I mean, it, it was obviously yeah. traumatic for everybody. Yeah. Maybe, uh, you know, uh, 
tiny bit more so for those of us who were so close, but not there, obviously. People from my office, agents I know, went right to the scene, you know, and a few days later, there were a few of us that were allowed back into the office Mm -hmm. to kind of man the office because the office was doing work, you know, issuing subpoenas and Mm -hmm. and trying to, at the time, no one knew if there were more people out there. And so I went in with a very small group of people. This is when downtown was completely closed. Mm -hmm. That smoke was so thick, it burned your eyes. We walked around the office with masks on, and it was just a surreal experience that, you know, I'll never forget. But it, in many ways, just re established, I think, for everyone why we were there and why we were doing that. And there was no question. Wow. All right. So, so, so you're in the... Uh, the Organized Crime and Terrorism Unit. Okay. And um, I focused more on the organized crime side of things. I did do some terrorism-related cases, mm-hmm. but it, you know, we sort of divided it up a little bit. And so I did a lot of the traditional um, La Cosa Nostra Italian... Right. right. You know, that you think about The Sopranos, you know. Um, <laughs> we'll fact, just hit every HBO show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and it really is like TV in the movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I often sat with cooperators, and as I was listening to them talk, I thought, you know, this is central casting 101. Wow. And wow. I can't believe this is what my job is. This is so much fun. <laughs> and it was serious. I mean, these are people who were really involved in some horribly violent um and, and economically oppressive uh, things. I mean, the, the organized crime families are no joke. But on a sort of one-on-one personal level, right. it, it could be somewhat entertaining. So I worked on um, DeCalvacanti is, is a crime family from New Jersey that no one's ever heard of. I've never heard of them, yeah. the one that The Sopranos is based oh, on. Oh, really? Yes. Wow, okay. So I worked on a lot of trials and cases with them. The family was basically, not by me alone certainly, but was decimated. Hmm. Um, I've heard that there might there's some resurgence. I worked on Gambino crime family cases. I worked on a lot of Genovese cases. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just a fascinating experience. Um, I also worked on what they call the non-traditional organized crime cases, Mm -hmm. um, Albanian, Chinese, actually a lot of Albanian alien smuggling cases, which now I think about a lot. (laughs) Um, I mean, these are people who were, we were targeting the traffickers, the ones who were smuggling in people in, and often extorting people who wanted to come here for thousands of dollars. You know, they yeah. would bring family members in and then hold them hostage and tell the relatives here, you can't have them until you pay us X amount of money, which was not what they had planned to do and not money that they had. So those, I felt, felt very uh, virtuous prosecutions. <laughs> in the Chinese gangs, you know, those also very violent. They had, like, wars going on, literally, in Chinatown. In Chinatown downtown. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and uh, so, you know, and the FBI had squads for all of these. So there was a, a, the Asian gang squad. There was the Albanian squad. There was a squad for each of the five, uh, well, not each of the five, but, like, the Banano crime family had a mm-hmm. squad, and the Genovese crime family huh. had a squad. Um, now that's been pared down a lot because the... Uh, organized crime families are not nearly as prevalent, so but they still you know exist. But that's how it was in. So we're talking about now like two thousand four, five that time period. And what was the one case? I mean, just picture yourself being in court. What was like the one experience that 
if, if there is one that you single out that was like your aha moment, like this is just really amazing that I'm doing this. I mean, I had that from day one. Wow. I remember the very first bail hearing I did in my <laughs> first year in the office against a defendant named Aaron Hall, who was a member of the Bloods, who was incredibly violent. And um, they wanted to have him released on bail. And I literally had been in the office like a week. And, you know, bail hearings happen very quickly. He was arrested, and I had to argue why he should be detained. And, you know, we, we had to prove, basically, not prove, but, but show probable cause that he's a member of the Splods game. You know, talk about his tattoos and, you know, what his nickname was and all sorts of things. So, I, I mean, I can picture that far back, and I huh. remember that and walking, and he got detained. I mean, it honestly wasn't the hardest bail hearing I ever <laughs> well, did. Well, you never know. But, but I mean, way back then, in yeah. my first few weeks in the office, I got to do that, and I walked out of there thinking, this is the greatest job in the world. So, it, you know, there, there certainly were bigger, more high-profile, longer-term cases that mm-hmm. I worked on, but this, if from the beginning, even the smallest case um, right. felt relevant and interesting and fun. And I, I can see, you know, this is obviously, you know, on a podcast, but yeah. your eyes just yeah. light up with yeah. enthusiasm. And I'm not alone in that. You know, <laughs> I think great. it's a very, it's one of the, one of the other good things about it is you go to work at a place where everybody, you know, not yeah. that you don't have bad days and there's, right. I, there's certain things you don't want to do and, you know, you do your own photocopying and, you mm-hmm. know, your own bait stamping sometimes and. Um, there are certainly parts about it that are very unglamorous and, and tedious, but for the most part, everybody appreciates and values and loves their job there. And you know, that, that's the other thing I just want to say is that, and cause I have a job I love and to be able to have a job you love is worth more than anything in the world. I agree. You know, and I yeah. think that, so, all right. So, so now you, you, you end up getting promoted, right? Correct. Okay. So after um, about four years in the organized crime and terrorism unit, I then became uh, like a deputy chief, it's called, of the narcotics unit, which was, you know, that early, second year unit I had been in. I did that for a few months and then was promoted to deputy chief of the organized crime unit. Preet Bharara actually put me in that position as um, deputy chief of the organized crime unit. I did that for a few years and then became chief of that unit. Um, I did that for several years, and then I sort of got to a point where I felt like I had, you know, I'd been in the office about eight years. Mm -hmm. I had sort of done a lot, done big trials, been a supervisor, and you reach that point where you think, okay, do I need to move on? Do I do something else? And one of the great things about a job like the U.S. Attorney's Office, and this is not just the Southern District, and it's not just the U.S. Attorney's Office, I think this is probably true in a lot of government-type offices, is you can stay in the same place but do different jobs and it can feel like a completely different job. Yeah. So I was sort of trying to figure out what to do and again, Preet was the U.S. attorney and they said, how about you uh, become chief of the general crimes unit? So the baby, the baby, right, the right. preschool. <laughs> and I said, really? Because usually very young supervisors do that. So mm-hmm. people who have never been a supervisor before, you know, become... So it's a baby learning chief. and a baby from both ends, yeah. Right, but, you know, they're experienced prosecutors. But, yeah, yeah so, but it's unusual to... It, at that time, it was somewhat unusual to, to supervise a senior unit and then go back to the general crimes unit. But I thought, you know what? Why not? And you know what? It was so invigorating to be back with the people who were just coming in mm-hmm. with that... Like you say, the enthusiasm, the mm-hmm. excitement, the, oh my God, I can't believe I get to do this feeling. It never goes away, but it's never like it is in the very beginning. And so to have that and to see them and 
and to know that you're working and training the future of the office is so valuable and was so um, reinvigorating for yeah. me. So it, it, it gave me more years on my life there, I uh-huh. think. And also, you know, they, they, you forget how much, how much you've learned over right. the years. And there's nothing like working with people who are just starting out to think, oh, wait a minute, I, I do know a lot. <laughs> um, and it's good to give back, too, yes, you know? Yes. No, it was very rewarding. It was mm-hmm. sort of the beginning of real teaching, um, uh-huh. you know, or, or liking the, the feeling of teaching. Right. Because that's really what that is at that point. That makes sense. Um, and so I did that for, um, I don't remember exactly, but it was actually under a year, and I would have oh. happily continued doing that, but then um, the Southern District has a satellite office on my planes, and uh, a supervisory position opened there, and I happened to be moving near there. And so um, they asked me to head up the White Plains Division. And I didn't really want to leave what I was doing, but uh-huh. again, and this is you know part of this theme running through this. Preet at the time and others told me, no, this will be good for you and great for the office. And I said, you know what, if it, and this is a theme of, of the Southern District, if this is what the office needs me to do, this is what I'll do. Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out to be very good for me personally, too. <laughs> Um, How many people are in that office? So it, it varies. It goes up and down. But I would say an average of 20 uh, assistants um, and support staff. Mm-hmm. And what's different about it and what ended up being so, um, I think, valuable for me personally, putting aside what I was doing for the office, was that the White Plains Division is not divided into units. So unlike what I just described, where you have one unit, two you know, so you sort of specialize in things. White Plains Division, everybody does everything. You definitely have people who sort of end up becoming more the white-collar prosecutors, people who are more the gang prosecutors. But as a supervisor, you supervise everything. Mm-hmm. So I really hadn't done much white-collar work, but I had to supervise it now, so I had to learn it, you right, know? Right, um, And so, or, or public corruption cases, um, you know, the, there had sort of been pieces of that in some of the organized crime stuff I had done, but now all of a sudden we had you know, significant cases pending against significant elected officials. And not alone, but with my um, co-chief, you know, those were cases that I now supervised. And, and uh, so it, it broadened my horizon. Yeah, which is great, well, too. So you get to exactly. learn. You're like probably 12 if I'm doing the math right. Or right, right. Years exactly. out and you're learning I'm again. Many years yeah. into the office. Yeah. And that's my point, too, is, again, it felt like a new career to uh-huh. me, a new job to me. Right. Um, and, and so I think, you know, even when you sort of hit a point in one certain position and government jobs, I think are particularly good at allowing you that flexibility. Okay. Where can we use this person now in a different mm-hmm. way? And it's something pre was very good at is sort of moving people around to places that they didn't necessarily think of right. themselves, but using, you know, knowing their strengths and weaknesses and putting them in new positions and it gives you new life. And it also allows you to give back in wow. different ways to the office. So that was really, and, and really extended. So I ended up staying in the office 16 and a half years. Wow. Um, which is a long time. Start to finish, not just White Plains. Start to finish. Start to finish. Right. Yeah. yeah, I was in White Plains right. for about four and a half years. Okay. And um, then here we are. And then, yes, <laughs> I ended up at Pace Law School. Again, right. not something I had necessarily planned to mm-hmm. do, but mm-hmm. the opportunity... Uh, presented itself, and I'm, you know, again, it's it's sort of a, a different um, path than I, I wouldn't have necessarily planned or known that that's where I would end up, but right. I did, and I'm very glad I did. For me, for my role at Pace, I, I've been able to both draw so much on the community that I was so much a part of, and bring that to Pace, and you know, sort of make that connection between federal prosecutors, mm-hmm. agents, even defense attorneys that I worked with, 
and, and bring some of that in the symposiums and panels. I was very involved in one of the things I did on White Plains. Again, not something that I looked for. It just happened, and I became deeply invested in it, was the human trafficking work, sex oh, trafficking. Yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. I was on the Westchester Anti-Trafficking Task Force. Mm-hmm. I'm still part of it, but in a different capacity, obviously. But it really, you know, opened my eyes to a world that I didn't know existed right here in New York, let alone Westchester County. Um, And so that's something that, you know, I've been able to keep working on through PACE, which I've I've really appreciated because we've had some, uh, we've had one and we're going to have another conference there on human trafficking and really keep, you know, because it it really, especially up in the smaller counties here in Westchester, as opposed to New York City, it's really about the personal connections Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to get things done that need to get done. And if you're passionate about something and you know the people who are working on it and can help you with it. And, you know, I feel like that helps a lot. Well, you did build a great panel. All right, so let's now talk about one more thing, and then I just yeah. have a couple questions and we'll um, wrap up. But you became a talking head, a very nationally recognized <laughs> talking head. So, and that's not easy to do. So just how did that sure. happen? Um, so that uh, started at a local level. Mm-hmm. Um, I started doing a, a through pace, right? And, and again, this is where the whole you know pace it just <laughs> opportunity presents itself. That's why we're called uh, opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the uh, Elizabeth Rapano uh, connected me with the Richard French Show, which is a local Westchester. Uh, it's not just Westchester, but mm-hmm. you know, sort of local cable show. Great show, very substantive. And I started doing that show several times a week and talking about current events and what was going on with the Trump presidency. And instead of yelling at my television uh, with my views, I could actually articulate them Uh on television. (laughs) (laughs) And as I got more comfortable with it, uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well do it on a more national level. And Uh so I uh, did my first appearance on national cable on uh, MSNBC. Did they find you or did you? I mean, uh, how, how a little did... bit of both. Uh-huh. You know, it, it, you talk to the right person who mentions it to right. someone. Um, I mean, I won't say it's easy, but right now in this moment that we're in, because there's so much in the news that needs explaining that people wouldn't otherwise care about. Mm-hmm. If you're a former prosecutor, not even just federal, although federal helps, or a defense attorney who has some experience in these you know, they need, they need people to talk. Now you're not going to get paid for it at right, first. Right. Um, but if you are comfortable doing that kind of thing and you have real experience and they, you know, can use you as an expert, they, they do need that. Um, and so it just kind of took on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. I did one appearance and then, you know, some producer sees you and says, Oh, come on our show too. And then it, I just, I, I did a couple, I did MSNBC and CNN, but I just developed more momentum, I think on MSNBC. I, personally liked the uh, MSNBC format mm-hmm. and anchors and just it felt like the right chemistry and so I ended up you know signing a contract with them and again it's not necessarily something that I ever saw it's definitely not something I ever saw myself doing mm-hmm. or thought I would do and it's not even necessarily something I would continue to do in what I will call normal times but right now I feel like the legal issues um, are so important to just the more broad, you know, future of our country that it feels meaningful. It feels in some strange way like a continuation of the public service that I was doing in the government. That's a really interesting perspective. Well, because because here's why, and I I wrote this somewhere, I can't remember, but in an article I uh, wrote or was quoted about this, 
So prosecutors, as I think everyone knows by now from seeing Mueller, prosecutors in general, all over from, you know, no matter what office you're in from the Department of Justice and FBI are not, they can't just go on TV and talk. They can't just give statements to the press. It's, there are rules about it, uh, DOJ rules about it, and, and it's just not the right thing to do for your case. So they can't talk. And when you have these constant attacks mm-hmm. going on, as we've had, and I think very unfair attacks on the FBI and the Department of Justice, the Mueller investigation, et cetera, the public gets one side of the story, one impression. Now, there will be people who will only believe that no matter what they hear, but there are plenty of people who want to hear the other side. And why is this okay? Right. Why is this Why is this a legitimate, uh, why was this a legitimate FISA warrant? Why is this a legitimate investigation? Why should we care? Mm-hmm. And that's not something that anyone in the Department of Justice can do. And so I think that former prosecutors, I think that's why you're seeing so many former oh, prosecutors doing this. Yeah. People are, and, and this is not a common path from the U.S. Attorney's Office, but I think former prosecutors and FBI agents, um, you know, want to speak out on behalf of, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the rule of law, because they know that the people who are actually doing the cases right now can't do that, right? nor should they. Right. Wow, that's interesting. Um, okay, so it's an incredible career. My question I have for you is, when you're in law school, if you want to be a federal prosecutor, even a defense attorney, do you need yeah. to focus on certain things in order to enhance your... I mean, I think, um, look, any any courses other than even the basics of evidence, criminal procedure, any courses that that have a focus in an area of criminal law, if you want to be a prosecutor, you know, so mm-hmm. the smaller seminar type classes, a lot of law schools, including Pace now, right. offer courses taught by practitioners, whether it be, I know NYU has, Judge Gleason teaches a, a course, Pace has tons of courses, um, you know, by criminal defense attorneys and former prosecutors like <laughs> me and my colleague, you know, and every law school has them. I think those are very good courses to take mm-hmm. because you're going to get um, the, 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 the stories like we're talking about now, but over a course of a whole semester that are actually really, uh, you know, the real life stories of this case that I did and here's what I learned. Right. Because it's so hard, as you know, you, you need to teach the basic rules, but it's, but, but the, problems and, and issues as they come up in everyday cases are not ones that you can necessarily, you know, list out in a textbook. Right? Correct. Um, and so I think those kind of courses are, are, are good and that's why law schools offer them right. as a balance. Right. I mean, you have to have both. Right. Um, I also think clinical experience is great. And in there, I would say it doesn't, it doesn't have to be criminal, right? Mm-hmm. So I actually, this is something I left out in law school at NYU law school, I did the Federal Defender Clinic. At the time, they didn't really have a prosecution clinic, even though I knew I wanted to uh, be a prosecutor. I think doing the Federal Defender Clinic was incredibly valuable for me Mm -hmm. because I got to work with federal defenders. And for someone, um, and that was something I talked about in my uh, interviews, even though I hadn't had a ton of experience. I talked about my clinical experience and having done hands-on work. But it could be an immigration law clinic. I mean, it doesn't have to... It's something where, again, you're going to work with witnesses. You're going to work with clients. You're going to, you know, get more hands-on experience. So I think clinics are, are a very important piece of that. That's great. So, so it's the skill set that you're getting, not necessarily... 
in a particular area, just as long as you expose yourself to that. Yes. Skill set. I mean, I think if there is a criminal law clinic, right. um, and, and I, and I know Pace has those, but mm-hmm. you know, not everybody can get into them, not right. everybody, you know, or, right. or maybe you just want to try something different. I don't think that that it's not going to prohibit you when you go for your interview, say, mm-hmm. um, to be a prosecutor and say, well, why did you do an immigration law clinic? No, they're going to say, tell me about the skills you learned in that clinic right. that could be transferred here. And you're going to say, well, I got to represent this this uh, woman who, you know, and this is her case, and I got to write the briefs, and I got to go to court. And I, I mean, it, it's about those skills. It right. doesn't matter what right. it is. It's, right. it's about, you know, learning to advocate for people. Right. All right. So in closing words, you know, come back to your theme for just a second. And if you have any kind of parting advice, what would okay. you say? <laughs> um, I guess the, the theme I would say is, first of all, to be, to, to have a goal, it, you know, it, because it, it's good to be passionate about something. And mm-hmm. if, if you're passionate about something, you're going to have a goal. Mine was to be a prosecutor for a, a, a mix of different reasons, but then be flexible in how you get there and be patient and realize that, as you said, better than I did, you know, each thing is a building block. Each mm-hmm. step is a building block. And you sometimes might do something to get to the next step and the next step. Um, and you're going to, you need to learn to, to be flexible and take something valuable from each job that you do. Um, but most of all, I, I really do believe that being, um, having a goal, being passionate about something, finding a job that you love is you'll, you won't mind the long hours. You won't mind the hard work if you love what you're doing. Um, and for me, that was being a prosecutor. It might be being a defense attorney. It might be being an immigration lawyer. I mean, there are so many causes and things in the world today to be passionate about uh, and, and to need good lawyers, you know, yeah. uh, to apply their, their skills to it. And I, I, your passion is just, I think it's climbing into the microphone. Yeah, <laughs> so, so. Right, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know thank that you're you. so busy. I look forward to seeing you on TV yes, tonight. Thanks again. Thank you. <laughs> thank Thanks. You. Bye-bye. So that's my discussion with Professor Mimi Roca. Thanks to www.bensound.com. Enjoy your day.